Hello, and welcome to the AgTech So What podcast, brought to you by the AgThentic Group. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. In this episode, we asked, how do you like your eggs? I like mine, fried and runny, but everyone has their own personal preference, and that's kind of the point. It's precisely this kind of customer focus that Sarah Sevier, today's guest, is passionate about. Sarah is an egg and livestock producer, and she started her business, which is called Just Been Laid, completely from scratch. It was only going to be 450 birds to start with, and so they arrived, and I sort of got the shock of my life only because the day they arrived, it was a 47-degree day, sort of middle of January, and I was just like, oh my gosh, these birds are literally all going to die the first day they get here. Sarah may have been new to eggs at the time, but she was not new to business or to farming, having grown up on a farm before entering the corporate world. With her venture into eggs, she's using her insights and best practices from the corporate world, including staying laser-focused on what her customers want. In the case of eggs, that's convenience and confidence that their eggs are being produced sustainably and ethically. This has led to a very non-traditional business model, for agriculture at least, a direct-to-consumer subscription service where people buy the eggs even before they're laid. Even if you don't like eggs at all, Sarah has some powerful insights about continuous improvement and the similarities between startups and farms. She's a woman who is not afraid to get up close and personal with her chooks or her customers. I run a pasture-raised egg subscription business up here in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. We have about 2,500 birds, give or take 500, depending on what part of the season we're in. But the important part of that, I suppose, is the subscription model where we work with customers to get paid in advance for the product, a bit like a gym membership or something like that. But yeah, so we run two and a half thousand birds along with about two or three hundred head of cattle on a couple of thousand acres here in the Hunter. That is awesome. Now, have you always been involved in the ag industry? No. So my career started I at university. I studied chemical engineering and commerce, which I absolutely loved. But that just came from a real, really keen interest in chemistry and maths at school. So there wasn't much else to that decision. Then after a few years at uni there, I actually headed off and worked for the likes of BHP Billiton on mining sites. And the main thing there is it's probably where I got my love for for data, became a bit of a nerd around data as I studied to be a Lean Six Sigma black belt. If you're wondering whether Sarah is a ninja, then no, not quite. That's just how business nerds, myself very much included, describe their level of knowledge in a process improvement framework called Six Sigma. This approach is all about driving continuous improvement, largely through reducing variation and eliminating waste. While Six Sigma started in the automotive industry and Sarah learned about it in mining, she has been applying it to ag. The Six Sigma side really focuses hard on data and, and looks at variation. So the chemical engineering side was just an absolute fabulous step into, into the data world. After BHP, I did a little bit more study, went and did my MBA over at the University of Oxford, which helped me transition into where I really feel quite comfortable in the world of agriculture. And yeah, from then on, spent the next probably eight, 10 years in corporate agri. Right. So you're sitting at Oxford and you like had a passion for agriculture or were interested in it? Like what was the connection there? 
So I come from a fifth generation family farm. So having grown up on the farm, I always had, I don't know, everyone just says you've got it in your blood or something like that. I think for me, it was like, I, I always, <laughs> I always knew I wanted to come back. It's really hard to articulate sort of that feeling. But so for me, it was like, okay, how do I make this transition to still be in the the corporate world for a little while? I wasn't ready to come home straight away. And there was actually this a course during my MBA called Managing Information in the Bioeconomy. And that just really did some really interesting case studies on global agribusiness. And from that, I went and worked for Syngenta over in Switzerland, who basically at that point, they were kicking off a team called their food security team. This was about 2010, I think. And my boss there was covered up a crush money, who went on after Syngenta to then head up the WWF's, um, she was the global conservation director. So for her, her passion came straight down to let's look at smallholder farmers or the business itself. Syngenta really wanted a strong focus on pre-commercial smallholder farmers. So that's like farmers with less than two hectares or less than the size of two footy fields worth of land. And how can we, how can we help these guys? Where are their constraints? And for us, that was just absolutely so interesting. It was looking at access to markets, access to finance, info, training, all of those sort of things. So we helped. I only spent a short amount of time there before returning to Australia, but it was really about how do we look to create business models that can work with these farmers. Do you have any examples of things that were successful there? Absolutely. So for me, whilst I was there early on in the days, like when these projects actually came to fruition, I think some of the success stories could have been even around production. So production, you're looking at really simple, basic greenhouses, which help to increase tomato yields by 400%. And that might sound crazy, but if you've got, now got protection from the weather or climate, you can control your climate better. That is an extraordinary jump and such a simple solution. But the next problem these farmers had was how do we actually get our product to market? So the next problem to solve was more around do we pick the product earlier, like harvest the tomato earlier so it perishes less, getting it to, mar- to market, et cetera. Things like that were discussions around training and um, production methods. Other business models were around bartering. Others include micro-insurance. Like they, they're just really simple, accessible solutions Based on the things that everyone has, so for example, everyone has a mobile phone or had a mobile phone in that. So creating communication and access to information through those sort of channels were just, it was really quite powerful and something that I just learned a lot from and it was nice to be a part of. That's really interesting. And I guess kind of actually is maybe the earlier parts of the continuous improvement journey for you. It sounds like some of those farms were going on a a pretty different, but still a continuous improvement journey with looking at those different business models. A hundred percent. And I think we learned whilst we picked up the training, like for me, that Lean Six Sigma work, it was lucky enough to pick it up at BHP, but it's just been literally applicable in every job you've had so far after that. There's such a strong focus on both data and, and people. So being able to combine that, I mean, where possible has been really, really powerful. And to your point, yeah, the, the farmers that we were working with, everyone just has this, I mean, things just farming in general, like farmers just have this appetite to continuously improve, learn about new production methods, methods, learn how to increase yields, learn how to better deal with the environment that they are in. And yeah, anything we could do there to increase that access to information was, yeah, really powerful. So you were in Switzerland working for Syngenta, but then how did you end up back on on the farm with your two and a half thousand birds? (laughs) Um, So it was a bit of a random jump. So my father 
got a little bit unwell. So I left Switzerland a little earlier than I had planned to, but that was absolutely fine. I came back to Oz. I actually came back to the farm to start with, just sort of to help out here for a little bit. Then ended up working for the International Finance or IFC, International Finance Corporation, as part of the World Bank. Again, very similar, sort of smallholder farmer work, very similar to what I'd been doing with Syngenta. But that allowed me to be back in Australia and working sort of part-time on the farm. And then shifted to Rabobank. I never thought I would work for a bank. I think when I left chemical engineering, like 50% of my class ended up working in finance. And I thought, no, that's not going to be me. Uh, And then I ended up (laughs) working in a bank. And it's one of the, seriously, one of the best jobs I had. It was, I was part of the food and agri-research team looking after animal proteins research. So you could be traveling around, like I probably spent, I don't know, 20 weeks it could be over the course of the year out with farmers in central Queensland, New South Wales, Northern Territory, all over the country talking about international beef markets and and internet or global trends really and it's just it's so interesting like I felt like a complete newbie and novice because you're talking to farmers that have been doing this for 50 years and their knowledge is just extraordinary so it was a bit of a two-way street with information sharing, so I learned a lot from them. And then, yeah, after Rabo, I think that's when you started to get that itch going, hey, I think it's time to go back to the farm. Left, left Rabo, spent about six months doing a, a heap of due diligence into what I might do back here. Yeah, it came down to something that needed to be complementary to the beef business. We like, weren't didn't really want to compromise on the beef, but equally I wanted something of my own sort of almost just to be able to start from scratch, test out and apply a lot of the learnings from the last 10 or 15 years and and see what we could do. And yeah, it turned out to be eggs. (laughs) And how did that happen? Did you guys have (laughs) hens before? Like what was the reason for eggs? Yeah, that, that's, I really don't have a good answer for this. I need a better answer. Uh, um, no, I it definitely didn't grow up with chickens, learn everything from scratch. Being like research nerd, like it was almost like analysis paralysis. Like, you know, you're sort of doing so much work going, okay, we've got to get this right, et cetera. And then it just came, came down to let's just flick the switch. I feel like we're pretty well prepared for this to the point where we were going to have, it's only, it was only going to be 450 birds to start with. And so they arrived and I sort of got the shock of my life only because the day they arrived, it was a 47 degree day, sort of middle of January. And I was just like, oh my gosh, these birds are literally all going to die the first day they get here. But <laughs> <Good start. laughs> it, was, it was literally like that. But no, what happened was you sort of, Go so out of your way. Like, so we were feeding them, feeding them frozen veggies, iced water. I slept in a swag down with the chickens because they're in, I've got to describe this, they're in mobile caravans. So the mobile caravans parked basically in a rainforest at this point, which whilst it was 47 degrees out on sort of the main ridge country, it was sort of well down into the sort of low 30s where the chickens were. So the stresses of setting things up kind of paid off. But there certainly were a few sleepless nights in a swag, just checking on chickens every 20 minutes. Oh, my gosh. And they also were getting used to the the frozen veggie diet and then were about to hit reality. Yeah, absolutely. They were... They went straight. It's really interesting the the routine. So we we're really really hands on with with the chooks, which obviously lifts lifts our cost of production. But the the hands on approach is like literally when the chickens arrive, they've come from a barn. They're about 15, 16 weeks old, and we spend the first 
four nights, only an hour each night, but there'll be three or four of us that will pick up every bird and put it on a perch because the birds will naturally be inclined to sort of huddle together for security and warmth. So we just it's like doing going to a gym class and doing 400 squats uh, in 45 minutes and literally just <laughs> picking up every bird off the ground, putting it on the perch, and it's amazing. It's like humans, like every other animal, everyone gets into a routine. So night two, probably 50% of those birds realise that bed is in the caravan on that perch, so they'll go in by themselves. We'll pick up the other 50%, probably only take half an hour or so. Then night three, you'll still have... 30 or 40 birds and by night four look you've got a couple of stragglers but they eventually cotton on to how things are supposed to go so after that the birds 100% no matter where we move the caravan so we'll move the the caravan really frequently just to spread manure etc the birds will follow and uh yeah put themselves to bed at night which is quite handy and now is the bird operation integrated with the beef operation at all? Like when you're saying you're moving them, is that part of a whole system or are they pretty separate operations? hundred percent. That's a really good question. Yes, they're completely integrated. We try to run the cattle sort of before and after. We certainly give the soil or pasture a certain amount of rest. But initially we use the cattle almost like a lawnmower to keep the grass or pasture short enough for the chickens. If you have certainly long pasture, we, you find that the chickens themselves get sort of sour crop. They just, the grass sort of ferments in their crop and that's dangerous, if not sort of lethal for the chooks. So the cattle um, move across, we follow the chickens behind and depending on what season as to how quickly the grass grows again as to when you might bring the cattle back. But we we don't really bring the chooks back for five, six months sort of minimum, uh, more to let the chicken, what the work that the chickens have done, so sort of spreading the cow manure, spreading their own manure, scratching, basically conditioning the soil, um, let that happen. And it's really exciting. I like just, sorry, it sounds like a bit of a nerd here now getting excited over this, but anyway, whatever. <laughs> After about, <laughs> it's been sort of three or four years or three and a half years now and being able to look at these pastures from above, and now that we've actually had some rain, um, it's been some pretty dry summers or dry times recently, it, you just can see this what will be the long-term benefits because it's really obvious, like very, very obvious sort of dark green, yellow, where the chickens, like the boundaries between where the chickens have been and haven't been. And I think that combined with us trying to increase our diversity in the pasture species is that, look, it's a long-term game, but really trying hard to integrate it and still learning. Yeah. You mentioned costs before and like that's all your workers out there doing their squats is, is probably not, not cheap <laughs> and, and, and you know, moving them. And it just, there's a lot there that's quite different. How, you know, originally was the business model different to support that or how do you kind of think about making the economics work? Yeah. So Definitely look at cost of production per dozen eggs. Labor is significant. Like if I if I looked at a dozen eggs, um, actually I'm just doing this off the top of my head, I'd say three or four of those eggs in the dozen would be worth in the labor as cost of production side. Another three or four, about three in feed costs because we use a relatively, well, it's not going to say expensive, but it's more costly than um, other feeds because it's vegetarian. And then another two or three of those eggs out of the 12 would equate to the cost of the birds themselves and then the rest of those just other expenses. So, yeah, labour is certainly a chunk, like probably a third of um, our um, cost of production. But I think the people that buy our eggs 
they're buying our eggs for a reason. These eggs don't suit everyone, the cost of them. We sell them for $12 a dozen and that and that cost doesn't suit everyone. I suppose if I looked in Woolworths or Coles at the moment, the average price of egg, free-range eggs would be sort of say seven, maybe $7 or something like that just to give people perspective yeah. on that price. So, yeah, no, the cost, we always knew it was going to be highly labour-intensive. I think we've learnt what needs doing to save us money in the long run. Like if I gave you an example, I was only thinking about this yesterday. We've got new birds at the moment and, yes, we spent our three or four days perch training, but the next step after that, sort of five or six weeks after that, the chickens come onto the lay. And, again, hopefully most of them by that stage have found where the nest boxes are. So in these caravans, whilst there's perches above the perches, there are nest boxes where we really want the chickens to lay their eggs because they then the eggs roll away off these nest boxes onto a conveyor belt that we just wind in a few times a day to collect the eggs. So the important bit being there is you 100% want your chickens laying your eggs in the nest boxes. If we had a chicken laying an egg on the ground or in a tree, which we've had before, <laughs> we we can't use those eggs purely for food food safety perspective. Like that's where you'd be looking at things like salmonella and issues like that. So we're just like, we just 100% rule out using any egg that is laid not in an S box on the conveyor. So if you had a chicken that just from scratch decided to lay her egg up a tree every day for, let's just round them some numbers, like 200, 200 eggs, and our eggs are literally could be worth a dollar each. So while she only cost us $15 to buy, she's worth $200 in revenue. And, yeah, there you go, lost straight away. So if we we only would have, after our work of finding those birds and training them, so we, again, would only spend sort of, we'd target probably about three days in a row, an hour again, going, okay, they're all onto the lay and we've got 10 birds that are laying not in the nest boxes. Just stand there between probably eight, eight and nine in the morning it's peak hour you can watch them they go <laughs> they'll wander over to a tree and they'll be you can look at them and you're like oh my god you're about to jump into that tree to lay an egg <laughs> so you I I would wander over grab her she'll squat for me anyway and then I'll put her in the nest box I'll do that two days in a row and she's like oh actually this nest box isn't so bad to lay an egg and for us so per bird you're saving what $200 a bird in lost revenue there 10 of those 2,000 so me spending four hours doing that uh, is really a decent return. Yep. That is, <laughs> I've got a million questions on that. That is hilarious. I'm, I'm trying to get at the, the, the like, no, no, don't go up in the tree. <laughs> like image yeah. of you out, out of my head. That's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, no, um, we have conversations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's too funny. Yeah. So I, I want to come back to the $12 a dozen retail. That's definitely not for everyone, but, but you're right. I mean, obviously no. you're seeing there is demand for that. Tell me a bit more about the, the business model. And you, you mentioned a subscription, people pay ahead of time. Was that the original model when you first bought the chooks? Yeah. So for me, it was like, if we're going to do something new or in addition to the beef, it was really hoping to make the income stream as predictable as possible. So I, I would get a little bit nervous about producing a product. And then for me, leaving it on the shelf in a supermarket or at a store or something like that. And hoping it's basically what it felt like that someone would like the packaging or like the idea of our eggs and, and buy it. So it was more about okay, how do we, how do we think this through? And actually, what came to mind it was a bit of a brainstorm. Had a really great group of um, people that helped me with the design work, like the packaging side. And 
as I, I was thinking, let's what, like the Kickstarter concept versus the existing CSAs or community supported agriculture. Like the concepts there, what we're doing is not really new. It's kind of just a, a variation on on other things. And they're like, look, what about a gym membership sort of subscription size? And I was like, you know what? We let's have a crack at it. And that's kind of how it came apart, a, a, a sort of around. So that that's where the the model came from. When you first launched it, were you nervous? Like we work with a lot of farmers in our Farmers to Founders program. And, and one of the things we teach is a kind of concept of a pre-sale, like, you know, going out yeah. there and saying, you know, this will exist. But it's it's a pretty um, big shifted mindset to say, you know, you're going to give me the money and I'm not going to give you the good right away. Was that hard yeah. for you to kind of initially launch it or how did that happen? I think so we tested it out. So we knew that people wanted the eggs and that was from so the first six months was actually selling straight wholesale so straight into cafes to make brunch for people on a Saturday morning the reason we chose eggs so I keep saying we it makes it sound like I run some massive empire it's just me really um so um (laughs) the royal we (laughs) yeah exactly the royal we when I was first starting off just to make sure that people wanted an egg a different type of egg I was like how is our product going to be different and those conversations with chefs were really, really interesting. The biggest problems they were having with eggs at the time were related to freshness. They, when people, and I didn't know a lot about eggs. I, I wasn't someone that was poaching eggs every weekend for breakfast. So didn't know this and learned a lot very quickly. Chefs, when they go to poach an egg, the egg needs to be super fresh. Otherwise, it just, the, the water they sort of crack it into, it just, the egg goes everywhere. And it's not only a waste of their time, but it's a waste of the cost of the egg itself. So if we could guarantee, which we, we do, that these eggs were going to be less than 48 hours old when we delivered them to them, that seemed to be something that they were pretty keen on. So that, that's, that, that was our first six months. So we knew that the product was good. We knew that the animal welfare side, like we hoped, I mean, these chickens were getting treated better than I was in summer. So I, I hope that the, the welfare side was up to scratch. But you're right about the nervousness for the subscription because this is what it was like. It almost felt like a big pilot. So we took a group and and piloted the program for about three months going, is this weird? Like are people willing to not only pay in advance, but it's not just that. It's they, They're getting their eggs from one of, like from a hub somewhere in Newcastle, in the Hunter. They're not going to the supermarket to get it. They're not exchanging cash for this. It, it's a very different feeling. And so we had quite a few learnings from that. But what we realised very quickly is that we didn't really want to change people's existing behaviour too much straight away. So if they were already going in for a coffee, we wanted them to be able to pick up their eggs at the same time. So we partnered with hubs. We now have about 25, but the hubs are really popular cafes that have regular customers. So they're already getting their morning coffee before they go to work or in this COVID environment, they're getting their morning coffee because they want to get out of the house. In the early days, Sarah also had success finding customers through selling at local farmers markets. However, she quickly realized that while these customers were loyal, it wasn't the channel that would enable her business to scale. Everyone was so supportive and we would sell out every every Sunday. But at the same time, they weren't necessarily going to be the same customers that would be subscribers because people going to the farmers market were that, that was their routine. That's like an outing. It's an activity. So then suggesting that they actually pick up these eggs from somewhere else, that wasn't really going to happen. 
Yeah, I think to that original question is were they going to the cafe or were they coming for, for us or did they know us? I think I think it was a combination because the cafes that we've partnered with, Newcastle just seems to be this amazing community that really supports, I don't know, new ideas and trying things. It's a great market for testing ideas out. So the cafes were super keen on supporting local and when they could put a face to the brand as well, that was helpful. So social media played a part there in increasing awareness. But I think also we got a little bit of traction social media-wise. People would ask us and we would ask them, like, where, where would you like the next hub to be and that sort of style. And, look, not all the hubs have worked out and, and we've learned a lot about that sort of process as well. So, yeah, I think it's a combination about knowing the brand and, and knowing the hubs themselves. That theme of constant improvement and lean is coming through again, like just all the testing and trialing of different things that you're doing. Was that really intentional? Were you, you know, designing and running experiments or more just something that kind of came through from your time in other industries? I think, I mean, there's always the models in lean sort of around the plan, do check, act, come back again, like that cycle of improvement. I think for farmers in general too, that is just, that's just how you operate. So to your point, I don't think there were formal experiments, not like I would have, say, done in the banking world or mining world because you're trying to bring people along. I mean, it's the luxury also of having a very, very, very small team. So you can be quite agile from that perspective. So I think, I think yes, that was absolutely intentional to be like, let's test something with we have no fear of it not working. I don't think it was potentially going to impact the brand. The only only things that we've seen on the downside of testing something is when a hub doesn't work out, you've usually got, you could have 10 or 15 people that are like severely disappointed that they now can't collect their eggs from that hub and managing that, like you're you're having a conversation with every one of these people because they feel like it's a two-way street. They feel like, and they are supporting you and have bought into this and are emotionally connected to this. And now you feel like you're seriously disappointing them. So Often those people will then travel to a different hub to collect their eggs. It's quite, it's really lovely, the support, but you do feel like you've let a few people down along the way too. You can certainly hear just how much Sarah's customers mean to her. And it's an interesting perspective because such a strong customer focus is actually quite unique in agriculture. It means she needs to be across every aspect of the customer experience, from attracting and retaining subscribers to their enjoyment of the end product. Her background in business has helped, but she says she needed to outsource some of the other skills required. There's quite a range of skills required, and I certainly don't have all of those skills. I have contracted out. So the creative side being the design of our packaging and the website even the design that goes on our delivery van, all that sort of stuff. I've worked with a great company called Head Jam here in Newcastle who are fabulous and have gone beyond being just, not say just the design, but just the creative. They really helped me bounce ideas around how how this business might work. And to be honest, they're way more trendy than me. So they're probably, uh, <laughs> they've got more of a feel for what's going on in Newcastle. So I, I got a good feel as to what might work, might, might not, as just one sort of pool of information. I am lucky also, though, that I have been able to draw on some skills from prior prior learning so that the, the lean side has definitely come in into play along the way especially the continuous improvement and really trying to dig deep into who is our actual customer but that probably takes us to that next point around I don't know if 
if you have a commodity-based business, there's certainly some of the learnings that we've, sorry, some of the things we've done here that would apply to the commodity side. But I, I also have the luxury of being in a community like Newcastle itself where I can go and speak to, to my actual customer, the end customer, I mean, like the, the end person who's consuming this product. And really, I think that was where some of that, the Nuffield research um, that I undertook, which really looked at what are the emotional motivators for these customers? And more importantly, I could guess what they are or make some assumptions, but how do I actually go and find out? And that was more about going and sitting with our customers when they're using the eggs and really asking them some questions rather than me just sort of making an an assumption or, or sort of incremental improvements on what we were doing. Yeah. Again, that's such a parallel to the startup world. I mean, literally that's what we coach startups to do. And the companies that we end up investing in have really nailed that customer value proposition as it's called and, and the business model that delivers it really well. And you've exactly hit on it. You know, farmers are really good at, at continuous improvement and that lean iterative approach, but sometimes on the customer side, either that's not possible or just hasn't been thought of to go that far and really understand the end consumer. Tell me a little bit more about what other examples have you seen of farmers doing this kind of thing globally? Yeah, Nuffield was an amazing experience with the intent of being given the scholarship to go and find best practice learnings across the world and bring that back and share that. So for me, my topic was around, well, farming businesses with a passion for excellence. And yeah, so you're right, the opportunity to visit these farms that were just, they just are obsessed with their customers. And some of them are big, like, and, and sort of, you're just like, okay, what are you doing? Like actually having these conversations. So you're able to sort of stand there, watch what they're doing, but once you're watching their operation, actually make a phone call back and be like, okay, I really want to talk to you about why why you or how you're doing this with your customers. And some of the examples, I think, think of two or three. One would be a, a strawberry farmer in, in the Netherlands. He was really interesting because he, he knew that um, certain things like convenience, customer service or, I don't know, quality, reliability, all those things are great sort of attributes to have in a product. But he knew that he had to have an amazing strawberry product itself and what he then chose he's like I want to focus on one other one other thing and for him it was flexibility which engendered an extraordinary amount of loyalty from his wholesale customers so to give you an example and I'll sort of put them into two baskets he had the Japanese market so he was exporting to Japan and he was also exporting to other parts of Europe but they're two really really different customers he was able to figure out that the Japanese were so particular about their strawberries that he could get from them the exact size of the strawberries they want, for example, between 13 to 15 grams per strawberry. When positioned in the punnet, the strawberries had to be all facing the same way, all on bubble wrap, all of the same colour or or of a certain colour against a colour chart. And then for an additional premium, he was able to get the feed. And this is just through, I want to say closeness, not geographical closeness, but that intimacy piece, through discussions with the end customer he was able to find out that I'm not sure if you've ever noticed, but when you've got a punnet of strawberries, the sort of the dead leaves, those little brown leaves that might be in the bottom of the punnet itself. So he was able to find out that the Japanese would pay more for this product if he could get rid of those brown leaves out of the out of the punnet itself. And so he came up as as farmers do, they they were like, yeah, no worries, mate, I can sort this out. Um, and came out with a really simple solution. 
um, of the conveyor and compressed air to just to get those leaves out and then attract a premium for that product. But in addition to that, he's like, okay, not all my strawberries are going to be 13 to 15 grams of a particular colour, et cetera. What am I going to do with the rest of them? And he'd already had the European market. And where he was looking there, I mean, where he was removing waste from his process, so not food waste, but waste being defects or rework or transportation, like rehandling your product, like double handling sort of thing. It was like the Europeans were quite happy to have strawberries that weren't on those bubble wrap punnets all facing the same way. They actually quite liked them. As long as they were of a certain quality, they met a certain lower quality standard, they were happy for those strawberries to be picked straight off the vine, put into a cardboard punnet into a, um, a larger box but those cardboard punnets were going straight to the market. So there was no double handling. They were coming straight off the vine into what would be the end packaging for the consumer. And they were absolutely meeting a quality standard. And, yeah, you had no rework and, you know, no double handling. And he hasn't necessarily gone through some lean Six Sigma formal process. That's just him knowing that if I get this right with the customer and, and the more precise I can be with my customer, how much more value that creates for them. I love that story. I also love your use of rework. I, I'm also a big nerd and like systems and processes and like continuous improvement <laughs> diagrams. <laughs> so I, I don't usually get to talk about re- rework, but we could nerd out on that. <laughs> oh man, I hate it. Like I literally start twitching when we see it here, just rework and Double handling is a big thing, but just watching someone when when we know how something's supposed to be done and then we're like, hey, hang on, how come that didn't happen that way? I'm sure everyone's the same. <laughs> well, I'm not sure actually. Like I think there's a lot of in any business, not just in farming or agriculture, there's a lot of, well, we've always done it this way. And it's, it is hard, like both emotionally, mentally, and actually just time and cost wise to challenge how you've done things and think about doing them differently. So I, I think that's pretty unique yeah. to be always seeking out that improvement, even though it, you know, we all, all want to improve, but doing the hard work to actually improve is not as easy. I'll give you actually an example of that. Like for me, what, those sort of things shine through is if we can attach a dollar value to it. And it might, it was a bit like the ground eggs, like an egg being laid on the ground, how much lost revenue. And when you can describe that to the rest of the team, everyone's like, holy crap, wow. But there was a nursery, a tomato nursery in Japan that we visited. And I mean, the Japanese obviously are renowned for continuous improvement. I mean, that's where sort of the Toyota continuous improvement system came from. But I just like this really basic example, and I'm sure people can relate to it once sort of they think about it, they would have their employees turn up for work. And if we just looked at the basic tools they were using, just a pair of secateurs to harvest the tomatoes, what they were finding just from watching people work, this was a, a startup that had gone, that had scaled really quickly. So this was sort of early on in the scaling days. They, people were really searching to find the, the tools. And just to put a basic timer on that, if someone spent sort of 10 minutes searching for a pair of secateurs every morning, times that by the number of employees, it, it worked out just per employee that it would equate to about 60 hours in a year just looking for a pair of secateurs, which, I don't know, at 25 bucks an hour, was that 1500 bucks or something in a year just looking for a tool? So <laughs> the basic, that's the same with anyone though. You could be looking for a spanner to do some repairs on your tractor or whatever it might be. I mean, we still do it here. So the, the behaviour being like the shadow board creation, which a lot of workshops would have now. So now this is where your tool is. Let's just go straight here, um, et cetera. But it, I just, it was like, actually, it was a really nice little basic example of some numbers attached to it and going, oh my God, this is almost embarrassing. 
I guess that's kind of where I wanted to go next, Sarah, is like, what changes do you, have you guys applied, if any, to the beef operation or like what lessons would you have or or insights for maybe more commodity producers who aren't thinking as much about innovating the business model, but are there opportunities to embody these lessons of continuous improvement and customer intimacy in even those more traditional businesses? So for our beef business, and I've only just taken over the beef business probably in the last 12 months because my father was running it. He passed away last year. So we, I think for me, it's now, okay, what, we had to ask the question, what do we want to do with the beef business? Um, how do we want to run it? And we will look to shift it, I think, I'm saying this, and it's one of those ones we say it out loud and hopefully it happens, um, <laughs> we'll shift it to more, consumer consumer facing not all of that business though maybe sort of 20 percent of it but the commodity business still we can still apply a lot of aspects of lean and we have been doing that over, over the years and that's that, that was as basic as going and look or go and see sort of one basic term go and have a look at other operations that are doing things well and see what you can learn from them another big piece was the standardization so whilst everyone goes oh but they're animals you can't create stand like sort of stuff if something you know and something inevitably happens and I'm like well yes but we've learned even with the chickens that we can predict to a certain degree how long an improvement will take or if we put a little bit of labor in here it will change their behavior and their routine so I think for us it's been about standardizing what we do and simplifying we also would probably look a little bit at I mean, I was calling it production control. I don't know. That's just probably from the mining days of producing the amount, the exact amount of rather than producing as much as possible, I think is probably something we need to think about. So that was the same with the chickens. So with the chooks, we knew we were chasing a a sort of a margin business there. So we don't need to scale. We're not chasing another 10,000 birds. For me, it's more about how how to create more customer value with the product we have. Uh, from that perspective, I think I think it is a little bit harder for the commodity business. I think the lean application is absolutely doable. That's a no-brainer, and that's that's just looking at removing waste from from the the process itself. My thing that we have done with the beef too is looked at a, a value stream map, and I mean basically for me that's just plotting out, get sitting down with the team, like everyone in your team, to do with the cattle business, plotting out what we do with the product from start to finish from when they're carving or getting ready to carve all the way through to the sale of the villa or whatever it might be and go, okay, then think about waste. And I think that's where people sort of trying to get their head around what is actually waste. And there's some really good books and information out there on on defining that. There's a great book called The Lean Farm by Ben Hartman that actually looks at the practicalities day-to-day of that from a horticultural context. But for me, it's like, how do we remove the rework? How do we remove doing more than we need to like <laughs> that's something that we have to learn for the chickens because it's we we no matter what we're always going to look after the chickens really really well but we have to put that filter over it going okay what what are the customers also willing to pay for in from that perspective so yeah i think there are learnings for the commodity business but i think it's more in the on the lean side um and standardization of processes removing unplanned maintenance removing rework so machinery mechanically things failing etc you're like okay dig to the root cause and that I think that's natural for a lot of farmers to look for what is the root cause here rather than just the band-aid solution but that's just something that's built into what we do now. 
Sarah, there's so many parallels here with startups. And I guess that's been one of the insights of this conversation for me is, is how much applies from other industries. One of the big things we talk about with startups is doing non-scalable things to figure out what scales. And the, you know, the, the perch example, like go in and if you have to do it every day manually, but if over time you don't, and that has a big improvement, that's worth doing that non-scalable task. And I think there's yeah. lots of examples of that approach. And, and it's exactly the same in, in the tech and startup world. It's really interesting talking to you about that because I've not really thought about it from from the like the parallels to the startup perspective. But it means exactly what I suppose it is. It's not. It is also a startup business, and I think you do get asked the question: Would you franchise or would you scale it? And I think for me, the bit I'm enjoying has been: Okay, how do we perfect this? What could be seen actually as a pilot for something else, but at the same time, I'm quite happy with the size we're at and we will probably look to diversify or our product range here on the farm to utilize this fixed asset more effectively or even add value-added products to our current line as opposed to how do we go and replicate this somewhere else I think also I'm a mild control freak um, so I think the customer piece for me if I was looking at what's scalable I'd really have to get my head around and I'm sure a lot of people have to think this too, how do you scale the customer intimacy piece? It's actually the question we're asking at the moment. How do we scale this customer intimacy piece that has a really authentic, genuine feel to it? Social media can only do so much. I'm sure there's a tech piece there. I'm just not tech savvy enough to have the answer to that. But there's something, there's a, that's probably the biggest question for us at the moment. I really look forward to hearing and watching how you answer that. Last question for me, Sarah. How did you come up with the name? <laughs> so I, when I looked it up, I totally thought Just Been Laid would have been used by someone else. I was like, there's no way. But when I typed it into the business register, I was like, oh, my gosh, really? Okay. And it's 100% to do with the freshness of the eggs that that's our competitive advantage or the piece that differentiates us so it, it seemed quite fitting and that's it for another episode of ag tech so what i should mention another cool aspect of sarah's business is that any leftover eggs are immediately donated to oz harvest a food rescue charity if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or tell your friends and colleagues. And check out our website, agtechsowhat.com, for more details and links to things mentioned in this episode. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.